I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Today, we have another guest, Shia, who is a dog trainer. So Shia is a Huntsville native. She started working in the veterinary medical industry in 1995. She's worked in pretty much every position you can hold in a veterinary hospital. She's been a kennel assistant. She's been a a veterinary assistant. Later, she did go on to achieve credentialing as a licensed veterinary technician in the state of Alabama. She's worked in reception. Originally, she did want to be a veterinarian, but ultimately decided that It wasn't the right fit for her as a full-time, all-the-time sort of a job. So she did earn her Bachelor of Arts in Business Management in 2001, and she went on to earn a master's degree in Organizational Psychology and Development in 2007, and her full-time job is actually working for Boeing. (laughs) But she's also a certified dog trainer. She's got lots of credentials, and we're going to talk about them a little bit later in the episode. Welcome, Shia. It's so nice to have you here. We're so excited to talk about this topic. Hello. So, Shia, you old like me. I'm yeah. older than you, but, you know. Yeah. We old veterinary bitches. <laughs> <laughs> We've already talked about how long you've been working in the field because that's it's been a minute. But how did you originally get interested in it? Uh, like Lauren said at the intro, I, I originally had the dream of, you know, becoming a veterinarian, uh, as a lot of people do, the whole puppies and kittens and rainbows. <laughs> and so one of the things that you need to have is experience uh, working with animals, especially for your applications. So I got a job at the vet, uh, starting part-time in the kennel when I was in high school and quickly just started to become cross-trained to help other people, uh, which, of course, will always look better when you're applying. <laughs> Once I graduated high school and moved to Auburn to pursue the degree, I kind of had a check of, ugh, I don't know if I can do this all the time, and decided to change that and went from, you know, a science major to a business major. The plan was to, you know, get my degree. I came home. I continued working full-time at that vet, went to school full-time as well uh, to get my bachelor's. I lost a couple years of school because of all my science classes I'd already taken. And I just cut, basically wanted to get a job so that I could get out of the veterinary field uh, for multiple reasons, you know, money. My body mm-hmm. was kind of falling apart. I was putting off having my first back surgery and I needed to leave. So. Got that degree, and through the help of actually a client at that vet, I he helped me get an entry-level job at Boeing, which is really difficult. We They don't typically have a whole lot of entry-level. So when I quit the job at the vet, I had no intention of returning or actually staying on, but unfortunately, I, I stayed on. Not unfortunately, but... <laughs> I was about to say... Quit. I don't mean... You all know what I mean. That's fine. But but you did decide to stay on. Yes, absolutely. I stayed okay. on. You know, that veterinarian is is family. Uh, yeah. I had been there for so long and I didn't want to totally cut ties. And I and I missed the animals. I'm not going to lie. I missed <laughs> a lot of that interaction. So I agreed to work as needed, which in the past almost 16 years since I left, has become actually, we need you every week. So pretty much all my off time is still working there. So You're not busy at all. No, no, no not, not at all. So when did you get first interested in uh, behavior? Like everybody, I feel like that goes into vet med. They, they have species that they prefer. I was a cat person for the longest time. Got my first real dog, my dog, when I was at Auburn. And did some dog training with him down at Auburn. And when I moved home... I ended up foster failing a dog that was brought to our hospital, uh, severely neglected. Uh, Somebody had cut her ears off with either a pair of scissors or a knife, covered in ticks, and she was terrified of people and terrified of everything. And I knew that we would not be able to find her a home unless she got exposure, socialization, controlled exposures, 
with good things. So I brought her home with me to while she recovered and I failed. So <laughs> during my fostering, I started attending dog classes with a trainer that uh, started working with us. She had moved down from the north and, you know, had done a lot of uh, AKC competition training and a lot of stuff. So she had a lot of knowledge. And she actually convinced me to start helping her teach classes because I was so successful training and helping my dog, who I named Satine, to move past her fears and become a active, happy dog. She used to go to elementary schools to with one of our veterinarians to talk to the students, to meet the children. She was just, she was a great dog. But that's actually how I started doing it because I I learned so much um, during that time frame. I had the pleasure of knowing Satine, and she was the sweetest pity. Yeah, oh, she my would show you baby. her belly. Satan. Yeah. She, oh gosh. <laughs> um, there was a, a kennel attendant that when she and I worked together had the the, the pit bull prejudice and oh. assumed because her name was Satine that her name was Satan. She obviously read it incorrectly. <laughs> and was like, oh, no. y'all stay away from that dog right there. That dog's name's Satan. It's a pit bull. And I'm like, dude, that's Satine. And Satine. I mean, she wouldn't hurt anybody, let alone uh, what the, yeah. I mean, what the hell? I know. And, and it's Satin with an E. Like, it's not even spelled. <laughs> no, not even, even remotely. remotely similar. No, no. Okay. No, no, but this was a similar person that also, like, would put trying to say that the dog is is deaf. She would spell it death. Some like, like D A T H. Yeah. Oh dear. Animal control did the same thing when they came to my house one day, and he's on the phone, and with the, you know the city, whatever they're called, uh, their little login people, and he was like, "Uh, so I got a dog here named Satan," and I was like, "It's Satine, sir. <laughs> Satin with an E. That's not how you spell Satan." Oh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, she says it's Satine. I'm like, well, yeah, I say it. Then I fucking named the dog. I'm pretty <laughs> right. sure I know what her name is. <laughs> and also, that's the way it's spelled, you know. So. Thank you. <laughs> People are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bless it. Well, she tell us more about your training credentials and also maybe what the individual credentials mean, because I know there's a lot of letters involved behind your name. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of alphabet soup that's after it. <laughs> Acronyms are life. When I started teaching classes and I was doing them on my own, I started to have a lot of interaction with clients that had expectations of more. Um, I, that's the only way I can describe that. So I, I finally sat down one day and I was like, okay, we're in Huntsville. We are in a population that is highly educated. These people have, you know, desires and goals and certifications and degrees. And, and if they're going to spend money on something, they want to know that the person they're spending it on is, is legit. Uh, yeah. So I started researching what I could do to increase my knowledge, but also kind of become somebody that wasn't just a dog trainer. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that I didn't want to not push myself for more and have educational requirements to do so. Uh, so the first thing I did was get my AKC evaluator certification. It's not really a certification, but that required that you had to have at least two years of experience working with dogs and their owners. Also, having experience working with a variety of breeds and sizes of dogs. So that was the easiest one to attain because I had been doing this for so long that I just had to do that and then take a test. And I was in, right? So I was like, okay, great. I have this done. I kind of modeled some classes after it because I'd already been teaching a lot of the things that are in there, but I was now having a fancy kind of trademark name of, okay, well, this is an AKC class instead of just puppy. So that was my first certification. Then I went on to get a certified professional dog trainer knowledge assessed certification. It required at least 300 hours of training within the last three years. 225 of those hours must include group training, private training, consulting with clients, and training hands-on with one or more dogs. Once I had filled in those hours and given proof of them, I had to agree to certain, you know, codes of ethics and such. 
And then there was a 180 (laughs) multiple choice test, 180 questions at a uh, testing center. You know, the kind where you can't bring anything in the room and they monitor you the whole time. So, you, you know, you don't cheat or what have you. The questions covered instruction skills, learning theory, ethology, equipment use, and the knowledge of what the equipment was originated for. So once I passed that test, my next goal was to become a knowledge and skills assessed trainer, but I had to have my first cert first. So once I had that, I applied to get my knowledge and skills assessment certification. And that that was applying for the test, paying the fee. They emailed you a list of with four behaviors they wanted you to train. You had could not have trained this dog prior to meeting them for this exercise. You had five minutes to prove the dog did not know the behavior, to instruct how to create the behavior, and then to have the client and or me demonstrate how to train the behavior. You were not graded on whether the pet learned the behavior. You were graded on how you teach and whether you're using the appropriate tools, marking, et cetera, to help teach the behavior. So those videos were mailed. You had three weeks to get them done. And then you had to submit them all to be viewed by other certified trainers to grade you on whether you were good enough at doing that to earn this. The the KSA, there was... I think there's about 200 people worldwide that have this certification. So that was the second one I went for. Then I went for low stress handling, which were 10 lecture and lab courses with quizzes after each lecture. You had to have a 90% pass rate and then a comprehensive test at the end requiring 90% pass. This whole program was 20 CEs, continuing education units. It took a really long time, many, many, many hours of videos and notes and testing and what have you. I also became a fear-freed professional, um, which now I'm considered an elite fear-free professional. And that required already having my fear-free certification as as a veterinary professional. Because I am a licensed veterinary technician, I had to take tests and and watch modules and all that to get my fear free. And after I think the third year uh, is when we went to elite. And now you have to have your original certification. You have to have at least 35 hours of fear free continuing education. You have to maintain your membership and you also have to have four hours of fear free education every year to maintain elite. And then I went and got my fear-free trainer certification, um, which I had to take an intake exam to even be eligible to try to get the certification. Um, I had to have current certification with approved organizations or programs with proof of completing them, as well as uh, either being licensed or having other approved certifications. So I got those because of my knowledge and skills assessment certification. I know it's a lot. Well, that's good. I mean, you're highly educated in this field. (laughs) I was going to say, I think that you um, accomplished what you originally set out for was to let people know that you knew what you were doing and have some letters to back it up. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like, I feel like Kanye West, you know. (laughs) Do you you have, uh, Shia, do you have perfectionistic tendencies? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) She's one of us. Mm, Yeah. Only with way better, I mean, in my case anyway, she's got, she's way better at a follow through and um, discipline than I am. <laughs> way better. <sighs> Bless her. She, she's, yeah. she always has a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I would do if I actually had free time. <laughs> I think I'd become a slug. I really do. I think I would just <laughs> melt into my couch and y'all would have to come peel me off of it at some point. <laughs> make me shower or something I don't know. <laughs> oh my god so since you've been training gotten some some time doing that under your belt and and using all those those fancy letters what are some uh common training myths that you can go ahead and uh bust for us my number one training myth that i really wish would just die and stay dead is dominance theory 
the guy that even put the study out has even said, uh, my bad, that, that this wasn't a good <laughs> evaluation of what I was doing. Dominance theory is not a thing. You are not required and you should not be forcing your pet, dog, cat, bird, I don't care. You should not live in a world of you do it because I said you do it. So that means if you ask, if you have your dog sit and they don't sit immediately, you don't pin them to the ground to do it. You shouldn't have to, quote, alpha roll your dog so that that dog lives better and makes better choices. People like to feel like they have power over these animals, but they are beings. They have the ability to make choices. And if you give them the opportunity to make good choices, you, you have a better pet and you have a way better relationship. It's, there's nothing more frustrating for me than to talk to someone that's dealing with aggression issues, resource guarding, and they come to me with, well, I, I'm, I'm doing the best to make sure they know I'm the alpha. And it's like, what? What? What, yeah. what is that even? What? Dominance mm-hmm. is fluid. Everybody yeah. has a up on someone else for various things. When I, I currently am in a one dog household recently, but when I had two and even three at a time, they all were top dog in different areas for different things. And it's not my job to be the ruler. It's my job to help live in a cohesive environment and help my animals, my dogs make good choices and be happy and happy with life. Instilling fear does not make a happy relationship. So I think there's a lot of a lot of inferred psychology behind the idea of the alpha male and how um, Western society has really like, like, ooh, look at this shiny thing. Like, I'm going <laughs> to dive into this, you know, right. <laughs> Were you talking about the one where the guy was basically describing wolf pack behavior and yeah. he described it as like, there's the alpha male and that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. That guy has come back and been like, I was super wrong about that. <laughs> Uh, in fact, he just had like some sort of like a Netflix or a YouTube. I watched it somewhere, some sort of special where he was like, you guys, I put, you see the study that people refer to? It was me. I'm telling you right now, I was wrong. Right. Why do people listen to this, but not anything I've done in the, you know, however many like decades since then. Right. He's really irritated about Anyway, sorry. Right. So he was doing that evaluation on captive wolves. He wasn't Mm. doing it on wolves out in the wild. So, yes, the relationship in captivity does vary. In the wild, they are a cohesive unit that has the fluid relationship. In captivity, their world is completely changed and controlled by humans, which influences how they work. So, yes, he has come back and said, my bad. And everybody else is like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Wait, wait, but he did 30 years ago? How? No. So, yes, that guy. Yeah. In the, I mean, and this is way off topic potentially, but like I've been very alarmed to see how that sort of terminology and thinking has filtered into the dating world uh, in yeah. people. Yeah. And where there's this idea that there are somehow alphas and betas as far as like human people go. And I'm just like, Oh my God, <laughs> I cannot deal with this toxic oh, masculinity. No. Please stop. Right. Super gross. Like, sorry, that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. I yeah, mm, super gross. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. That was, I know that was off topic. Okay. Here no, we. you're, you're good because it is, it is one of those things. The person that you see that's going to be forceful with a human is almost always forceful with their pet or vice versa because they have this feeling and this mentality that they should be in control of all things. And if you do not comply or align with what they want, either they're going to make you do it or they're going to kick you out the door, which is a shitty options for anybody, especially a pet, because, okay, so I piss you off to the point where you drive me across the river and just boot me out the car. That's because you're an asshole. Not, I mean... (laughs) So, yeah, that's not a social status asshole. No, exactly. It's not. <laughs> well, it's not one you should strive for anyway. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Control is an illusion. Right. <laughs> so honestly, uh, dominance theory is my main pet peeve. The approach to how we do things in the world, which kind of rolls over into 
what clients and, and people that get pets is kind of where we roll into the other soapboxes that I can get on of making better choices for your pets to make better choices. So some other issues in Europe, they have banned most compulsive tools used for dog training. It is illegal to own them, to use them, what have you. What are compulsive tools? So compulsive tools uh, would be something like a pinch collar that as you apply pressure to the collar, it digs into the neck and inflicts typically pain or at least a starter response to kind of break out of whatever they're doing. What people here like to call an e-collar or a stem collar, E for electronic, not for Elizabethan. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> I have a side story. I went, oh, this is so terrible. I went to PetSmart to mm-hmm. buy an Elizabethan collar for right. my dog. because That's the cone of shame. That's right. The cone mm-hmm. of shame. Right. The kind that we were carrying at my work at the time was not that awesome. So I wanted something that would hold up longer uh, because he was going to be wearing it for a while. And I go and I can't find them. And I, uh, I ask an employee and he's like, oh, um, let me go get the manager. He has to get the key to unlock them. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and I stand there because I'm thinking, why the hell are they locking up the Elizabethan collars? Like right now we've been coming in and out of them being on back order, but this is like pre-COVID. Like right. why the crap are you protecting a piece of plastic, but With whatever. Like some Velcro or whatever. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> so here comes the manager and he's like, follow me. So I'm just like, and I walk behind him and he goes to unlock this case that has shock collars in it. And he goes, so which one did you want? And I was like, this is not an e-collar. And he was like, yes, ma'am, these are e-collars. And I was like, no, no, I need an Elizabethan collar. And of course the look of, huh? And so I w- I even motioned. I'm like, the cone of shame? Oh. And he takes me there on an end cap. I didn't see them on the end cap, obviously. Right. But God, an e-collar in vet world is an Elizabethan collar. A cone of shame. Not a shock collar. <laughs> Inside rant there. Well, that's an important distinction because... Mm-hmm. That's like me being anal retentive. I'm going to have to add that to all my surgery discharges. Instead of e-collar, I'm going to have to put an Elizabethan collar to prevent your pet from licking. Like, specifically. Right, right. Because I mean, some people don't. That's right. That's <sighs> absolutely right. And unfortunately, some people believe the pet store over us. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. They'll, they'll be like, oh, no, no. Your vet meant this shock collar. You just zap them every time they go to lick it. You know? Right. That oh, could be God. a very bad yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so in Europe, they have banned these types of tools. They have banned what was considered a positive punishment, adding something to the mix to prevent the dog from doing something. So you're adding positive as in math. And it's a punishment because whatever you're adding is doing something to this pet to discourage it from continuing forward. In the United States, a lot of people are kind of butthurt over that because there is a push to have them banned in the United States as well. This is not throwing shame, but people that most people that consider themselves or call themselves a balanced trainer typically go for the compulsive tools before they go for positive reinforcement. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of people right now that are kind of getting upset because the more positive reinforcement side is pro helping your dog make better choices, making things redirection instead of, you know, or avoidance at all costs. So avoidance is an Elizabethan collar, a cone of shame. You put it on, it prevents the dog from doing something. The negative impact that that dog encounters truly isn't really much because yes, it's, it gets in the way, but I, I, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but when my dogs wear an e-collar, they're just banging in all kinds of crap. They don't care. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, they'll take your knees out. Right, yeah. right. My my one dog, uh, she literally ran headfirst into a tree to shatter her e-collar. 
And my dad called me like three hours after he put her back in her crate and left my house. He calls me at work to tell me, oh, by the way, Rogue um, shattered that thing that was around her head. I hope that's okay. And I'm like, bruh, <laughs> how long have you been gone? About three hours. Oh, well, I hope she didn't open her sutures. Cool, cool, thanks. But that's the other thing that bugs me. People that say, oh, well, this collar, this collar that it only applies a, a stem. You know, it's like having an e-stem on your back, you know, a TENS unit. Uh, it's just like what they do in physical therapy. No, no, it's not. Because the purpose of that tool is to make a negative experience for your dog, for your mm -hmm. dog to be bugged by it enough or hurt or what have you. They have to have a bad experience in order to stop. This is why you're adding it in. So no, don't tell me it's just a little z or what have you. And, and I won't lie. I have tried one. I did a lot of things. I mean, I've learned a whole lot, especially in like the past decade of what I was doing and what I thought I knew to now. So yes, I, 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 get, a, I get irritated when people's go-to is let me throw a pinch collar on the dog because it's pulling instead of taking the time to teach the dog not to pull. We are in a world of I want it fast, I want it now, and damn the consequences of it occurring. And then we're also the people that are euthanizing their pets because they have aggression. And it's, I'm not saying that all tools can cause aggression. And a lot of people do all the right things and they still have an aggressive pet. But you are just loading a gun if you continue to add these tools that can cause emotional harm to your dog. So I don't like e collars or. <laughs> Pinch collars. Shock, electric collars. Yes. Mm -hmm. Shock collars. Okay. Let's just call them what they are. Shock yeah. collars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I can speak from experience. If you have a TENS unit that's turned all the way up and <laughs> you, you get connected with that, it's it's not a pleasant experience. Truth. Oh. Yeah. How do you know? Um, <laughs> what do you mean? Because... Uh, <laughs> One night when uh, <laughs> me and my friend, Dr. Grider, had mm -hmm. finished with CE classes and I bought a TENS unit because it was buy one, get one free. And it came with some nifty little shoe things. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to TENS unit my feet. And I couldn't figure out how to make it work. And you were trying to help me and you had it turned all the way up. Turns out how to make the connection is put the other shoe on. And right. like I got like completely electrocuted <laughs> and could not move and was like going oh man yeah. top 10 one of the top 10 funniest moments of my life no offense only funny because you weren't harmed in any substantial way I was, but man i mean i was what like locked in position and yeah uh, most people i didn't know what was going on you were just like Turn it off, turn it off. And I was like, what? Why? <laughs> like, it works. Turn it off. I was like, I could probably turn a light bulb on right now. That's why. <laughs> we were just trying to relax and watch forensics files, you know, like a bunch of old ladies. It was like, not even late. It was like 6 p.m. We're like, well, none for the day. Yes, I'm just going to watch some forensic files and eat a, early. eat a sandwich, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and then I electrocuted JJ. Oh, poor JJ. Yeah, that was a fun experience. So yeah, I would I would think e collars would not be pleasant either. <laughs> yeah. And and it's true though, those stems, man, because you know, when you go to physical therapy, a lot of times you get that applied and yeah. you're a glutton for pain, or I am anyway. So they turn it up to where my freaking whole arm's twitching and they're like, Is mm -hmm. that too high? And I'm like, No, you're good. And as I'm twitching, <laughs> but then your body gets used to it and you have to call them back over. Could you could you put it up? I'm not twitching anymore. So, yeah, no. But that is also something that you... Um, asked for? Have consented to. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this was my request. I, I, I wanted it because even though it was uncomfortable, it feels good. But there right. is a pain level because it can be too high. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we just... That and like, you know, when you anticipate something to feel a certain way, it's not yeah. as bad as like... What the hell is happening? Like, right. I don't know. No one, you know, I don't know what's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there times, Shia, when you think using those sorts of tools would be appropriate, like, or or never? 
<laughs> I have difficulty with this question because one of the things that we as trainers have to accept and kind of deal with is you can't be completely positive reinforcement because there has to be some negatives at times. And again, that what what is considered something that they don't prefer really depends on the dog. When I when we talk about negative punishment, negative being remove something and the punishment is because the dog wants it. An example is if your dog's pulling because they want to go see that squirrel, you stop and you turn around and go the opposite direction. I'm removing what they wanted and that's their punishment is that they can't even go see the squirrel now. But a lot of people kind of get a little hung up on we only do positive reinforcement and doing just what I described is a bad thing. So there is a stance that most training uh, certification bodies hold called LIMA, which is uh, least intrusive and minimally adversive. So that means you kind of go on the hierarchy of what you should be using the most versus the least. So at the very beginning, you should always try to approach to a positive reinforcement thing. If I'm standing with my dog and my dog sits, I'm going to give my dog a little treat. I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just going to give that treat. And then when my dog stands up and then sits again, I give the treat again. And the dog starts to learn that, hey, I'm getting some good stuff and all I'm doing is sitting my ass on the ground. Cool. And then you start to go up the ladder. So yes, there are times when certain things are or can be used. I just don't think that a shock collar is, I don't think there's ever a time for that. I think that there are so many other management approaches, including pharmaceutical, that we can help the dog instead of punishing the dog. If, if you think about it, if I smacked your hand every time you did something I didn't like, and I never, you never can ex- understand what I don't like, are you going to be more irritated with me or are you going to be my bestie? you're going to be more irritated. So if I've got a dog that's showing aggression and I throw more things at the dog that it won't like, how in, how can you think that that's going to make it better? How can you think that this dog that's afraid of me and is growling at me and lunging at me that if I shock it, well, by God, it's going to be like, oh, we're friends now. So you go up the ladder of let's try the easiest, the the what we would consider the best, most humane approach, and then you climb the ladder as needed. But I don't think that shock collars are needed. Some people consider what a, a head collar or a halty, which is similar to what a horse wears, like a as a bridle. You're talking about like a gentle leader. Sort yes. Of thing? Yes. Okay. So the the halty and gentle leader are, uh, I think, brand names, but they're basically a head collar, right? So it's mm-hmm. not a muzzle. But even people in the positive reinforcement world consider that a, an adversive tool. Hmm. Some people consider the Easy Walk, which is a, another brand, but it is a, a dog harness that latches to the chest and has a connection to where if you stop, the, uh, the connection to the harness will kind of squeeze the shoulder blades forward together to prevent the dog from pulling forward. It is a least a lesser invasive application or tool than the head collar because dogs typically don't mind having a harness on. But if you put something over their face and you don't train them with it, that's invasive because nobody likes that. If you throw one on a dog, the dog's immediately going to paw and try to get it off. Um, so you kind of have to look at the whole situation and determine what is the best tool for the dog. But again, I don't think that we ever get to a a shock collar or a pinch collar or what have you being the best tool. Shia, what are the most common mistakes you see dog owners making when they get a new puppy? There are two things that uh, come to mind that are the most common and the most damaging, in my opinion. One is the lack of setting boundaries, and the other is socialization. When I say the lack of setting boundaries, I mean people get a puppy and they do not really observe the puppy. The, the, the puppy is allowed to wander the house. The puppy is allowed to go hide behind the couch and go to the bathroom. The puppy 
is allowed to make choices that once it hits what I call the jackpot, it's harder to undo that choice later. Uh, Countersurfing is honestly one of the biggest complaints clients have and one of the easiest things to avoid by boundary setting. My dog, Rourke, he was raised with boundaries. He was raised how it was recommended by a veterinary behaviorist who changed my entire life um, by reading her work. And he's a totally different dog than the previous dogs I had raised. He does, he's, he's not perfect. He does put his paws on the counter to steal paper towels. You, mm. you could have a hamburger there and he will take the paper towel and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> he just likes his paper products. But my previous dogs were counter surfers, except for my very first one, my Rottweiler. And, and honestly, I was a college student. I lived in a duplex. You know how it is. Like, there's not a lot of room. So that dog's under your 100% supervision at all times. So I ensured that he didn't wander into the kitchen and make bad choices. And as I got older, busier, lazier, I allowed my dogs to kind of wander and go pee in the hallway or what have you. And so I paid for those lack of boundaries as well. So I can kind of speak from experience there. We give them too much freedom too early, and then we get you know, frustrated because things aren't going the way we want them to. The second complaint that most clients and owners have is, I cannot potty train my dog. Guess what they need? They need boundaries. Your dog does not go and hide to go to the bathroom somewhere that they shouldn't because they're being naughty. They're doing it because they learned that when you caught them and you reacted poorly and you punished them, They learned, well, shit, I got to go around here so I don't get my ass beat again. But you shouldn't have an ability. Your dog should not have the ability to go hide behind furniture. Your dog should be in front of you. If you cannot 100% supervise your dog, that dog needs to be in what I call a potty-free zone, an area where your dog for sure does not eliminate in. Typically, that's a crate, but you have to ensure... I. I used to have my dad come stay at my house when Rourke was a puppy so that I could take a shower, which sounds really extreme, but I wanted him to not pee in the house. And I, I work. So pre-COVID, I was gone for 10 to 11 hours a day. He stayed at my vet during the day so that he could go out and all that stuff, you know, and get his snacks. And work on house training. But when I would come home from work, from my first job, then go do dog classes at my other job, and then take the puppy home with me, my dad would come over so I could take a shower because Rourke was in a cage pretty much all day or in a run. And I wanted him to have a little bit of freedom. But I also wanted to make sure that he didn't start peeing in the house. But housebreaking is easy if you set boundaries and you don't give them access to things they shouldn't have. The other issue is socialization or lack thereof. One of the things that has been a carryover for a very long time is the recommendation that, especially dogs, that puppies should not be in a public area until they are fully vaccinated. And we all know that that means they're at least four months old, if not older. You're missing a huge window right here where if you can be in a controlled environment, you should be exposing your dog to things. The American Veterinary Behavior Society has even written a stance on it saying that your dog is more likely to be euthanized for behavior issues than it is to get parvo if your dog is at least one week post first distemper parvo vaccine and your dog is in a area that is controlled to prevent those kinds of exposures. Uh, So that doesn't mean go to PetSmart, but it means you go to like a vet and you have a controlled exposure there. I encourage classes to start. Your dog has to be one week post-distemper parvo vaccine. That's my only requirement because we do control our environment at the vet. We don't want an outbreak of parvo. This has actually been studied in Essentially, what they did was they compared the rates of parvovirus infection in puppies that 
were normally vaccinated, but who delayed training until after that 16-week vaccine, so like kind of traditional recommendations. And then they took another group that still got their vaccinations on time, but went ahead and started puppy training classes as soon as they'd had at least one vaccine. And they actually found no difference in the parvovirus contraction rates between those two groups. Now, certainly, we wouldn't want to go like, training dogs that have never been vaccinated, you know, but as long as we've had at least one vaccine, it looks like there is no increase in the incidence. And the title is Frequency of Canine Parvovirus Infection in Vaccinated Puppies that Attended Puppy Socialization Classes, a 2013 study published in the Journal of the American Animal Hospital Association, so the AHA Journal, and, and those specific numbers were 279 puppies attended socialization classes and zero were suspected of or diagnosed with canine parvovirus infection. So none of the puppies at all that were studied had any parvo, whether or not they were in any group. So the, the rate was actually zero. I really like the ABSAB's positions papers because It's easier to convince a veterinarian to change their approach or to recommend differently when they have like other veterinarians making those calls and basically saying, hey, we've done the study. This is the American Society of Animal Behavior. We know they actually reference seven different papers for their um, position statement on puppy socialization. Their takeaway was, in general, puppies can start socialization classes as early as seven to eight weeks. They should receive a minimum of one set of vaccines at least seven days prior to the first class and a first deworming, and they should be kept to date on vaccines throughout the class. This is from 2008. When I approached my vet about changing how we did things, and when I I actually made a whole presentation about you know, I think that we need to start approaching our patients differently. We need to approach how we recommend puppy experiences differently in training because I have dealt with dogs that they waited until they were four to six months old before they started training. And those dogs are, they're kind of nut jobs. They, <laughs> they're, well, they're scared. Yeah. And their their fear is an aggression. It becomes aggression because of how we respond to it. And and it is very hard to train or change an emotional behavior response. Like if you're afraid of heights and you've been afraid of heights for your first 15, 20 years of life, I can't take you up at to like the Grand Canyon and stand there with you and go, now just don't be afraid. <laughs> You can't undo that. You have to go through a lot of work to do it. So that's why I had approached my vet as to let's, here's some options. Here's fear free. And here is the low stress. Here are the things that we can do to make life easier for us and for our pets and for our clients. And socialization is number one. So are you instrumental in getting the practice you work at fear free? Yes. Good job, Shia. I recommended that we went low stress, uh, but Fear Free has a lot more money behind it. And unfortunately, Dr. Yin took her life um, in, I think, 2014, if I remember correctly. Uh, and so her, everything that she had done kind of kind of went to a standstill. And, and Fear Free was starting to come forward at the kind of the same time as me sitting down with them. And because no one really knew what the path forward was going to be for the low stress handling stuff, I understand why we went Fear Free. Yeah. I do personally think that Fear Free is a good overview, um, but I think that the low stress handling is a much more valuable tool, especially for veterinary professionals. That time frame is is something that if people just Keep their dog at home, let them only out in their backyard, and then bring them to the vet for their vaccines. The dog loses the ability to learn that new is not bad. I just had a dog recently that was there for some loose stool, was at the vet yesterday. And this dog hasn't been seen since he finished his puppy series and was neutered. And he's almost a year old. Well, he's anyway. 
this dog is terrified of people, tried to bite just to try to get him out of the cage because he hasn't been exposed to anything. He just, you know, he saw us and then he stopped coming and he has a bite warning on his cage now and on his record because you cannot trust that he will not attempt to bite you just trying to get a leash on him. Socialization does not stop just because the puppy series is over. You have to continue to expose your dog to new things. And if your dog has a negative reaction to something, you you should be trying to work towards remedying that. I have a lot of people in class that talk about their dog basically having stranger danger, which typically is a lack of socialization, or that we just, we did a lot of socializing as a puppy, and now the dog's three or four, and again, the dog doesn't really go anywhere, doesn't have exposure to new people, new things, new smells, new sounds, and suddenly the dog is just a shit talker every time you have the dog in the car and go to get something at the drive-thru. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I do is I actually carry treats in the console of my car. And when I go to pick up my groceries or I go to the drive-thru for food or what have you, my dogs get treats while we're there and while people walk past and approach because I want them to see that as an opportunity for good things to happen, not as a, oh my God, I'm so scared. I'm going to growl. I'm going to bark. I might bite somebody or I might anal gland all over my mom's back seat. You don't want any of those. Ew. So exposure <laughs> with good things to pair with questionable things is, is important. Socialization, boundary setting. Major, major things that should be focused on as puppies and into adulthood. Socialization should never stop. That's something that I, I don't I don't think I really have thought about is to continue it as they're older. And I can see maybe with previous pets that I've had where I'm, I've made that mistake where I, I did socialization as a puppy. And then as he got older, it was more of an isolating experience for him just because I changed where I was going to school, and he was basically at a house most of the day, whereas before he was on a college campus. Mm -hmm. And I can see where that was a disservice to him. So I'm learning new things. Well, it's not a disservice. I mean, you're not, it's not an intentional thing. It's, it is honestly in our world, and I think y'all can agree, there, there are a lot of things that we consider common sense because we're exposed to it, we know it, we're used to it. Mm -hmm. But until you are kind of shown a different point of view, you you have no other knowledge. This is what you know. That's that's how I started to transition the, my approach to training and, and behavior and all that was this is what I knew. And then as I started to learn, I was like, oh, holy shit. I And I looked back and thought, God, I was dumb. But was I? You can't help what you are not exposed to and what you don't know. He was just ignorant. But you know what I mean? I, yeah. I just, yeah. I, people shouldn't feel badly about being uneducated about things or mm -hmm. making choices. Cause I've made really bad ones too. And I have seen my, looked at my dogs and gone, yep, that's totally my fault. Yep. That dog is, will sit, but she's not doing it because she enjoys it. She sits because she's afraid of what other options she has. And when I could sit both of my dogs next to each other, Rogue and Rourke, and Rourke was the one that was raised totally differently with boundaries and a complete uh, positive reinforcement. Watching them both sit was eye-opening because he's sitting dumb and happy, and she's <laughs> sitting like, oh, okay, <laughs> is this good enough? Where he's just like, oh, da -da -da -da, I love sitting. <laughs> So Shia, what success stories do you have? When I think about success stories, honestly, my private one-on-one -on -one sessions are probably the most successful. Typically when you're in puppy class or in a basic obedience class, we do address kind of behavioral issues, but more in a preventative kind of fashion. This one actually kind of goes back to my issue with dominance theory um, and being the alpha. I had a dog, a male pity mix, who the uh, owner reached out because they were having difficulty with resource guarding food. And when I get a referral, 
I, I have a list of questions that I ask because honestly, before I really spend a whole lot of time with these people, especially because the beginning part's always free, I prefer email. Otherwise, I'll be on the phone for two hours and yeah, anywho. <laughs> so uh, the client has reached out. I reply back and I'm like, okay, can you explain to me kind of what's going on? Because they're having difficulty with this dog guarding their food bowl. And they replied back. I'll never forget this. They replied back that because I said, well, you know, what activities does this occur in? Is there anything that makes it worse? Is there anything that improves it? And what have you tried? And the reply back was everything makes it worse. And it's getting, you know, like it's just getting really bad, like walking into the room. He's freaking out bad. So what have we tried? Oh, well, we've even knelt down on all fours and eaten out of his food bowl while pinning him to the ground. And that didn't help. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. You, you put, you, <laughs> you ate out of your dog's food bowl and were punishing and pinning your dog to the ground while you did it. And you don't think. See why that didn't help? What? Wow. And so I kind of replied, I, I'm telling you, man. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry. That's just the craziest Dude, thing I've ever heard. I'm saying. <laughs> and I seriously, like, I remember getting that email, and I'm pretty sure I was at Boeing. I was at work, and I glanced at it, and I'm like, the fuck did I just read? <laughs> and I let one of my friends at work read it, a non dog training vet med friend and she's like i they did what and i was like right okay okay because you're normal and and i i feel like i'm okay so i apply back like hoping that they're shitting me right i mean mm -hmm. come on anywho um i, I said I, i'm sorry who advised you like like where did this idea come from and they were like oh that's we've tried a different trainer and yada 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 and that's what he told us to do and i was like mm-hmm Okay, cool. I don't want names. I don't care. Whatever. But sure, sure, sure. I'll meet up with you guys. So we meet um, and they're talking about what's going on. And I'm familiar with the dog because, I mean, it's a client. And <laughs> within about 15 to 20 minutes of approaching it more appropriately, the dog wasn't resource guarding the freaking bowl anymore. Because you don't punish the dog for approaching its bowl. I mean, you you want to encourage the dog to want you to approach the bowl. My dogs have always been used to and, and accidentally trained that if I walk up to their food bowl, either to put water in or uh, like they get, you know, a supplement, Desequin or what have you. When I approach their food bowls, they spit out what's up in their mouth because they think, hot damn, she might give me a treat. <laughs> and, and that's all you have to do. You know, even my cats, for the love of God, my cats were trained that if I approach them while they ate, they spit out their food because God only knows what mom's got. <laughs> oh, gosh, I need you to come train my cats. I can train you to train your cat. Mm -hmm. uh, there you go. <laughs> my cats are naughty. My cats, they were on a schedule and... They even still did it after I had to medicate them. So, you you know me, I'm pilling my cat twice a day. And, you know, a month later, still spitting out their food. Like, what can I get from you? <laughs> so there's ways to make things good. But yeah, that was, they were shocked at how quick and simple it was to change the approach and change how they thought the behavior should be handled. And the dog was just like, rock on. And I followed through with him a couple of times and everything was still great. And it was just like, wow, people. Um, the other one is a Border Collie female that uh, came to us and unfortunately did not have a lot of great experiences prior to coming to us. She vetted elsewhere to the point where one day the dog refused to go into the automatic doors because the, the where she was currently vetting was inside of a store. Anyway, um, so they came to us. Well, things don't get better just because you change where you take your vet your pet to be taken care of for veterinary medicine. And I was referred her because the recommendation was euthanasia or see if maybe she can try to help. 
And I was not looking forward to that because seriously, if it's that bad, I I, I don't want to be the one that has to be the the decision maker. They'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, she's not fixable. That ain't my job. Anyway, <laughs> this dog, I stood in the rain for at least 10 minutes trying to just get her to get into the building. She was so terrified. She did. We finally made it into the building. It was the back part of our building where she had never been in. The environment's different. The smells are different. Everything's different. This dog, with working with her and her owner for months, this dog would would just be so excited when she saw me. She was running and jumping up on me in excitement. She was now entering the front part of our hospital. She, I started cross-training her with other people at the hospital because, again, I'm not there all the time. And if she needs something done, I can't take off of work to be there for this specific dog. So I started having other people work with her and throw the ball for her and pay her and do nothing. Don't touch her. Don't ask for anything. I want the exposure to be, yay, this person throws the ball for me and this person will give me treats and I don't have to do anything but just be a dog right now. And just those small kind of changes changed the entire approach for her. I have another dog that they have to sedate to do anything with. But if if he works with me, if they schedule it when I'm working, we can do his full annual, get blood, get anything we need. And all that has to happen is we give him treats. His owner will give treats. I will pet and do very, very little to minimal restraint. And we can get everything done in one session instead of having to sedate him to get everything done. When Before I started working with him, he was lunging at people and having to be muzzled and, you know, all these things. And now, at least with me and one of my doctors, he he doesn't. We can get him taken care of and make it a less stressful environment and experience for everyone. So, Shia, are there any books, journals, or other resources that you strongly recommend for anyone that's interested in learning more about training and behavior? As I mentioned a little bit ago, Dr. Sophia Yin kind of changed my entire life and how I approached uh, behavior and training. She has multiple books, even booklets. She has tons of posters uh, that are free resources online. The first book that I would highly recommend anyone read is called Learn to Earn, and it's more of a booklet. It's only, it's not even 100 pages long. It's It's quite short. And it just kind of gives an overview of, as a pet owner, how you should approach certain things. Then she has another book of The Perfect Puppy in Seven Days, and it talks through how she helped train this her parents' dog, which she had bought a cattle dog for them and trained the dog for them. And she took us through the entire journey and lessons learned and what have you. The only caveat I will say to the Learn to Earn is that I have never thrown away my dog bowl. (laughs) She does recommend get rid of your dog food bowl. You should be training and using that as food at all times. And I totally get that, but I'm also lazy. And I work a lot, so my dogs do eat out of bowls. But when Rourke was a puppy, he had at least one meal a day that was hand-fed. Typically, between my work at Boeing and before I started dog class that evening, um, we would work around the entire training room with his dinner. But otherwise, I still kept my dog bowl. So a lot of people kind of go at that. But I I mean, great if you have the time and can take it. I, I do absolutely believe that that's the best thing for your dog. Because whether you want to know it or admit it or realize it or not, Every minute you spend with another animal, you're training that animal. It may not be intentional and it may not be the right thing to train, but that's what you're doing every time. So that's her thinking behind throw away the food bowl. But yes, anything about Dr. Yen, I just, I love her. Well, Shia, thank you so much for being on the episode today. We really appreciate it. I think this is going to be really informative and and help a lot of people. Yes. Thank you for having me. Sorry if I talk too much. No, we like it. No, it's a podcast. You're supposed to talk. (laughs) (laughs) It's an important part of it. (laughs) We will go ahead and post on social media some links to the resources that she mentioned as well. Uh, So check out our social media accounts for that information. Before we sign off, we'd like everyone to know that we've created a listener poll. 
We've created the poll to help us understand our audience better and to bring you the best content possible. If you wouldn't mind filling out the poll, we would really appreciate it. And you'll find the links to the poll on our social media accounts. If you have stories, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. We're at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.